Look forward to retirement and avoid the pitfalls. Keep listening for ways to maximize your retirement income. More than money with the Popowich Carmelli Advisory Group, CIBC Woodgundy, on News Talk 770. Lifestyle matters. It's more than money. I'm Faisal Carmelli, and my co-host here is Rob Gary, investment advisor, wealth advisor, and now filling in for Dave Popowich. Welcome, uh, Rob. Great. It's good to be here. Big shoes to fill, right, Faisal? Not really. No? Not really. It's just <laughs> Dave Popowich. Whatever. Anybody can do his job, right? <laughs> no, I'm glad that you're here. Uh, timely piece that's come out this week uh, mm-hmm. on the show, uh, talking about, of course, we're going to have a conversation about inflation. We're going to have a conversation about volatility in the markets. Um, we've got a fantastic top-ranked portfolio manager that we work closely with that's going to be on the show today. And then also that came out this week, uh, let's use the word coalition. Let's use the word coalition because that's what's been said in the media. Right. Um, and we've got a minority government or now are they really a minority government? And so we've been bombarded by our clients by listeners of the show about what the heck is happening in Ottawa between the NDP and the Liberals. Clients, media, it's, bom- yeah, bombardment is a correct word. Yeah, and social media has been going crazy about this stuff too. And so we got to make sense of this. And there's no one better than Lori Williams, Associate Professor at Mount Royal University. Lori, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. It's great to be with you. So we've got uh, to kind of make sense of all this. Give us the overview first of what's this deal and and they made this announcement so kind of give us an idea of what what's this whole deal about between the ndp and the liberals so what they've done is kind of formalize what's been happening in the minority uh, this minority government and in the previous minority government where the ndp has agreed on certain conditions to support the liberals on matters that could be deemed a vote of confidence so whether there's an actual formal vote of confidence or a money bill a budget, for example, on any of those kinds of, uh, of votes, the, uh, the government could fall if they don't win the majority support in the House of Commons. What the NDP has committed in a more long-term and stable way to do is to support the Liberal government, as it's been doing up until this point, uh, and always when they've given that support, there have been conditions attached to it. So the conditions attached to this particular uh, sort of longer term, more stable support is that we will vote with the government uh, on confidence votes and on uh, money matters, supply uh, matters, as they call them. We're going to vote on those two kinds of things. We're going to vote with the government, providing the government moves forward on certain policy areas that we campaigned on, including pharmacare, dental care, Uh, environmental issues of various sorts and and so on. That doesn't mean the NDP can't stand up in the House and criticize government. It doesn't mean that that, uh, Jagmeet Singh will not be criticizing Justin Trudeau or or his government. What it does mean is that Justin Trudeau doesn't have to worry about making a deal on each individual vote, but rather there's going to be a longer-term plan for cooperation between the two parties. Now, given that both parties won, put together one more than half of the vote uh, of Canadians in the last election, and given the fact that a lot of Canadians say they do want their, their elected officials to work together, after all, we elected all of them, and we want them to work together to find solutions, those two parties are saying this is, this is good for Canada, it's good for democracy, it's a move in the right direction, and it gives the stability to get things done until June of 2025. The opponents, of course, are saying that this is somehow undemocratic, 
but that claim, and it must be understood, that claim misunderstands how parliamentary government works um, in many places where they have multiple parties and they always have what we call hung parliaments where nobody has a majority. Parties have to work together in order to govern and that happens in, in countries all over the world. It's just something we haven't seen a lot of in Canada and it looks unfamiliar. It is exactly what happened in British Columbia in 2017 when uh, John Horgan didn't have a majority in order to govern, needed the support of the Greens. Um, and so what it does do is it gives the ability of, of whichever party is the governing party, the ability to plan and to accomplish things on a bit more of a long-term basis. It may lose some of the accountability that people like about minority governments, but it doesn't lose that entirely. There's still the possibility of criticizing. Um, Jagmeet Singh, for example, could vote to call um, government officials to testify before committees. That's certainly a possibility still. It may be less likely, but there is still that possibility. So holding government to account isn't lost, but I, I understand those who are critical because they think that that accountability might be diminished somewhat. Critical, I think, is a lot of a word our clients are using right now towards government. But then when we start to look at it, we go, how is this affecting Albertans on a on a general scale? That's That's the question that they're going to start to look at. Well, I think in Alberta, um, again, I think there are a lot of Albertans who want the municipal, federal, and, and provincial governments to work together to solve the very real problems that Albertans are facing right now. So we know that there's more oil revenue coming into Alberta for the time being because the price of oil is so high, but Albertans are also experiencing higher utility costs, very actually uh, significantly increasing um, utility bills for them. And that's, that's quite problematic. I hear some people describing their utility bill as, as almost uh, as high or higher than their mortgage payments. Um, uh, there's a, a problem with employment. Uh, people are underemployed or, or unemployed. So even though government coffers uh, are full and even though there's money to spend on economic stimulation, that's not something that average Albertans are feeling on a, on a broad scale at this point in time. They are seeing their costs go up and their income is not going up. They're suffering all kinds of uh, effects from the the uh, COVID pandemic, uh, in decreased income, they have a business, their business might have uh, suffered significant losses and be in jeopardy. All of those folks are still dealing uh, with very significant problems. And so they, what they want is for governments to work together at different levels of government, not just in Ottawa. So um, there are some Albertans, many I would say, the, the majority of Albertans want to see, for example, something like daycare, which requires cooperation between the federal government and the provincial government. Now we're hearing pharmacare and dental care being promised. And again, I think most Albertans would like, especially low-income Albertans who qualify for this, would like that help and therefore want their government in Alberta to work with the government in Ottawa to try to, to, to make these supports uh, a reality. Uh, on the other hand, there are people in Alberta who are very angry with Ottawa. They don't like Justin Trudeau and his government. Uh, certainly the majority of Albertans did not vote for Justin Trudeau, although a substantial number of Albertans did vote Liberal NDP, the majority did not. And the folks that are really angry with or opposed to Justin Trudeau want uh, or, or think that Alberta is not getting a fair deal in, in the Federation, those folks want to see their government fighting harder against uh, uh, against the federal government. And, and so that's putting a different kind of pressure on the Alberta government in terms of how it's supposed to manage these things. So it's a bit of a delicate balance. 
but I have to say, if, if we are going to see uh, economic diversification and growth in coming years, it's going to require a joint effort. The, the fact is the Alberta government, even with this, this windfall of oil revenues, is not going to have enough money to do what needs to be done on its own. If we look over the last two years and a bit, if we look over that time period, the federal government has actually given more money to Alberta uh, on a per capita basis than any other province in the country. And that's because Alberta has needed more money uh, for things like orphan wells, transit, just help for Albertans dealing with the pandemic, income support, business support, and so on and so forth. That money has come into Alberta. And I think most Albertans, even if they may not like who's currently in power in Ottawa, they do like those supports. And so that balance between uh, what Albertans want, um, if you like, economically and what they want politically is is a bit of a delicate one. You know, Laurie, there's a lot of fear out there, especially with uh, people who are higher income, higher net worth, the concern about these two parties working together on taxation, which has yet to be discussed in, in full, we understand that there's some issues about flipping houses and so forth. We've understand about that part of that, but there's the there's a real big concern: capital gains tax going up, higher income tax, maybe a, a requirement to withdraw more money out of your RSPs to get that tax money in quicker and so forth. All these different things. Some have been uh, part of their their election campaigns, and some of them are made up stuff that we are seeing out there for sure. From your perspective, Laurie, what's the impact to Canadians? as they go through retirement. These are people who've saved money, who've got higher incomes, who have to start to withdraw and pay tax on this. Where do you see the impact with this this new NDP Liberal uh, coalition? I think the biggest concern folks have uh, centers on the cost, whether it be pharmacare, dental care, um, the cost of the pandemic up until this point. Uh, and and if you're um, persuaded, as many liberal politicians and conservative politicians have been historically concerned about deficits and debt, the cumulative debt, the cost of servicing the debt, and so forth, these are real concerns. And and um, a lot of people don't want to see either the short-term costs that might come in higher taxation, particular particularly taxation on things like like capital gains or withdrawals from from RSPs and so forth. Um, they're concerned in the short term about those costs, but in the long term about the costs that might be associated with uh, um, servicing the debt for their children and their grandchildren. What seems to have become more popular in recent years is this focus, rather than on the the total debt, rather focusing on the debt to GDP ratio. And in Canada, we went into the recession in a much better position with respect to the debt to GDP ratio than any other uh, uh, G7 country, even G20 country. We're in very good shape compared with those other countries. And, and I think we're still doing relatively well on that count. But the reality is the pandemic has increased exponentially the size of the, of the deficit and the debt. And a lot of people are very concerned, not just with what that's gonna to cost today, but we're now looking at not just the spending that's already been done in, uh, during the pandemic, which presumably in economic growth can be, can be paid back in, in, in relatively short order. Now we're looking at increased spending to help Ukraine. And that, that spending is going to likely continue. There are demands for increased defense spending. Defense spending looked like a, a less important thing, I think, in previous years, but now I think everybody's taking very seriously the fact that we have to have um, effective uh, uh, weaponry or, or military spending 
in order to to uh, thwart potential advancement out of places like Russia or other countries to defend Canada. Uh, we're hearing strategic experts talk about and reminding us that we actually have a northern border essentially adjacent to, to Russia and that we could potentially be in jeopardy. Well, defense spending is significant. So now we're coming into a time where even though oil revenues are coming in in higher numbers because of all this international uncertainty, uh, we are seeing potentially increased defense spending, increased uh, aid for uh, the people in Ukraine and those that are, are fleeing the, the conflict in Ukraine, uh, an increased influx of uh, immigration from uh, Ukraine, from Afghanistan, and the need to deal effectively with even those who are staying here temporarily and want to return, for example, to, to Ukraine once the, the conflict has diminished. So there are a whole lot more sources of uncertainty, things that are likely to cost money, and those concerns are, are legitimate. But the reality is that the price of oil, the, the costs of, uh, of defense, um, and all of these other factors hinge on things that are outside Canada's control. And it wouldn't matter if it were a conservative, an NDP, a liberal, or a green government in power, those all would be the same. The other thing I think is really important to understand in this context is that a lot of people think that it would be better for the oil industry to have a conservative government in power in Ottawa than uh, than the current liberal government, particularly given the demands being made of it by the by the NDP. But Mark Carney, the former bank, governor of the Bank of Canada, is involved in international investment advising still, and he is insisting that the oil industry has to strike a better balance between energy and the environment. Uh, if people are going to have confidence in investing in that sector. So I think actually there's an opportunity in this particular sector, and it's an important sector in Canada. It's a source of enormous revenues in Alberta, but also a source of enormous revenues in Ottawa. And could, if this oil price continues to go up, could be one way of offsetting some of the, the costs that we just talked about. But that investment will not be stable and continuous uh, unless that this balance between energy and the environment is one that investors have confidence in. So as I see it, there's an opportunity there. Do you do you see um, the fear that many have spoken to us about with tax rates getting you know, going skyrocketing and new ways of receiving revenue from the quote unquote wealthy individuals? Um, do you see that happening in the next three years with this minority government coalition that we're that we're talking about? Uh, I think what we have seen so far from the Liberals, and, and again, in this in this coalition agreement, um, that it has not been specifically addressed. We have seen discussions on the part of the Liberals about um, taxing the super wealthy. I don't think that's going to affect people that uh, are, you know, just sort of in in the in the middle class range, people that uh, are are either on the cusp of retirement, about to retire, actually drawing revenue from, from their RSPs. I don't see a signal at all in, in any of the discussions that we've seen up until this point. Uh, I don't see any signal at all about increasing um, the tax for that, that group. What I do see is, just because of the housing shortage, more discussions about limiting the kinds of money that people make by purchasing uh, properties or housing units. Uh, simply for investment purposes, because that has a disadvantage, disadvantageous effect on folks that can't afford to get into the housing market currently. So I do think that's one area where there might be a change, but I don't see any specific 
policies or signals beyond what we've already seen uh, in terms of increasing tax for those who are in the upper upper middle class range of wealth. We've got about a, a minute left, Rob. I know you and I have had a whole bunch of questions. Is there anyone on your list you want to ask, Lori, before we have to go to commercial break? Uh, maybe just a quick one, Lori, on do you see any other new legislation coming out from, from this coalition? Well, yeah, the, the, the changes that will, and who knows if this will happen. I mean, we're talking about a deal that lasts till June 2025. Uh, even if they, they bring into place, uh, as they're promising, pharmacare and, and dental care, those initiatives cannot be acted on unless and until they have the cooperation of the provinces. This is not something the federal government can do alone, but they can do something just as they've done with child care. They can work with the provinces to get these policies in place for the citizens of various provinces. Um, in terms of what they've got on the, on the list right now, I don't see any new legislation. Most of what they're talking about is either there already or in the works. That's a great question. And these are the things that people are concerned about. You know, their pocketbooks, their taxation um, benefits, such as pharmacare and dental care, will, will benefit many Canadians. But there's also a cost to that to some. And so, you know, when you look at all these different changes, there's going to be um, a lot of thoughts about, well, can I retire here? Can I, will I be able to have the same kind of lifestyle that I had prior to this coalition? Uh, we got to talk to one of our, our I, I'm going to call them partners, yeah. teammates. Absolutely. In our portfolio, we do have uh, certain managers that work with us, and uh, we've been fortunate to have a relationship with Edgepoint Investment Group for a while now. Uh, we did a lot of due diligence on this company uh, before we decided to work together, uh, and we love their take on things. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when we talk about what's happening in the markets, inflation, volatility, Rob, it's a it's a uh, it's a time to actually get some of the other experts on the show and talk about their perspective of things. Absolutely, you know. Yeah. So let's bring them on the show. We've got Ty Busada, Portfolio Manager and Founding Partner at Edgepoint Investment Group. Ty, thank you for joining us today. Faisal and Rob, it's a real pleasure to be with you. Thanks for the invitation. So we have a lot of concern. And let me kind of paint the picture for you. Faisal, I, uh, got, uh, I'm, I'm out of town. I'm coming into the office to see you next week. I want to talk about inflation. Inflation is really bothering me. It's five, six, seven percent. My friends in the States are saying it's seven, eight percent down there. I'm worried about this. So Ty, let me, let me paint that picture for you. That's the email I got on Friday. Should I be worried? Should investors be worried about inflation? I think the answer is yes, investors should, uh, should have it as a concern. Look, inflation is bad for investors. If we step back and we ask ourselves, what makes a business worth something. It's the sum of the cash flows that that business is going to spin off over time. Uh, and if you think about a cash flow or a dollar today versus a dollar five years from now, a dollar today is worth more than a dollar five years from now. And why is that? Because you could take the dollar today and invest it into a savings account and earn an interest rate on it. So if interest rates are very low, like they were in 2020 and 2021, then a dollar 10 years from now is worth almost the same as getting a dollar today. But as rates move up, what ends up happening is, is you can earn more on your money that you get today. And for that reason, a dollar 10 years from now becomes worth a little less or becomes little less valuable. So the way to think about inflation is like gravity for asset prices. As inflation rises, it pulls asset prices down. Now, again, this is because it devalues the future profits of the business. Now, if you're trying to save money, you, you don't like inflation. 
So how do you protect yourself from inflation, I guess, is the most important question. And, and there's a few things. First of all, I think we have to start with imagining that you own a business and inflation stop, starts popping its head up in your business. And all of a sudden, the cost of heating your business is higher. The cost of staffing your business is higher. The cost of insuring your business is higher. And if you can't pass along those costs to your customers in the form of higher prices for your goods, then you're in trouble. Uh, and your costs will be going up, but you won't be able to increase the revenue of your business, so your profits will go down. So that's obviously bad. So the first thing you want is a business that could pass along price increases to its customers. You want a business to have pricing power. The second thing you, you want is a business that can grow. Volume growth is important because it allows you to leverage the costs inside your business. Let me give you a simple example. Um, think about rent, for example. If your business can sell twice the amount of widgets next year as it did this past year, then rent costs as a percentage of your revenue goes down. And this means your profit margin should go up. So volume growth is also very important in addition to pricing power that we talked about before. And Really, those two things matter, but they don't matter nearly as much as this last thing I want to talk about, which is the idea that the most important thing of all when it comes to investing is always having a unique view about a business. What, what does that mean? How is this business going to be bigger in the future than it is today? And why am I not being asked to pay for that growth today? Everybody knows that a utility company, for example, has pricing power. Your uh, electric company can take rates up on you and you don't have an alternative. So when everybody knows something to be true, it's already priced into the business and the markets. Likewise, it's not enough to know a business is going to grow in the future if everybody else already knows that. Because if everyone knows something, it's already in the price. The key to being able to add value is to buy growth and not pay for it. Have a unique view, have a proprietary insight about the business and its growth into the future. Absolutely, and that's a, that that does give the picture of why investors should be worried because you just go out, can't go out there and buy any company willy-nilly because not all companies will do well when inflation continues to go up, when interest rates go up, when these are that profit margin, that volume of sales, and, and how you look at that business. Is that a unique offering? And can you buy growth for free? So Ty, I think you did a, mm -hmm. a good summary on, on why investors should be worried about inflation, especially when it's been so easy to make money in the market because everything was going up for the past few years. Now it's a different different quarter, which mm -hmm. kind of, we were talking about volatility and so forth. Well, we were talking about volatility and Ty, we've seen clients are seeing their, you know, their portfolios on a monthly basis, up, down, we call it up, down and sideways, yeah. right? It's been all over the map the last couple months. And it, it's sticker shock, right? Because they're seeing the news as well and seeing stock indexes on a daily basis, up and down. Can you kind of give us an insight on, should investors be worried about the current volatility? And how do you see that playing out going forward with the geopolitical events and everything going on right now? Yeah, thanks, Rob. W with regards to the ge geopolitical events, first of all, let, let, I think it's important to, to say that our heart really goes out to everyone in the Ukraine, and we think it's an awful situation that's going on over there. Um, with that said, uh, we, uh, we look at volatility differently than most people. Most people look at volatility as risk. And we see volatility as opportunity. 
Um, we think volatility is the friend of the investor who knows the value of a business, and it's the enemy of the investor who doesn't. And what does that mean? Well, let me give you an example. Imagine for a second that I stood outside the core shopping mall in front of a fancy car. Uh, let's call it a nice Audi for $50,000. That costs $50,000 normally. And I said, I'm going to sell these brand new Audis for a dollar each. What's going to happen? You're going to have a lineup that's probably 10 kilometers long of people trying to buy those cars for a dollar because they know the value is 50 grand. And likewise, if tomorrow I stood in the exact same spot in front of the mall and said, I'm going to sell these Audis for $2, the lineup would probably be even longer. And people wouldn't say, oh, geez, yesterday I got this car for a dollar and today it's costing me two. And the reason they're not going to say that or begrudge the fact that they have to pay $2 for it instead of one is because they know the value is 50 grand. Likewise, if I held up a cup of Tim Hortons coffee and I said to you, I'm a buyer of these cups at a million dollars each, what's going to happen? Everybody around me is going to run inside the mall to the Tim Hortons and buy as many cups as they could carry and try and bring them back and sell them to me for a million bucks because they know the value of those cups is a buck or two. And likewise, tomorrow, if I'm buying them at half a million, they're going to do the same thing and not say, oh, geez, yesterday I got a million and today I'm only getting half a million. Why? Again, they know the value is a buck or two. But let me ask you this. What happens if the company that owns Tim Hortons, Restaurant Brands International, suddenly falls in price on the stock market by, let's say, 15 or 20%? The average investor panics. Why? Because there's very little as uncomfortable in life as watching the price of something you own go down if you don't know what the value of that something is. It's our job to know the value of that something in the same way that you know the value of a nice $50,000 Audi or a cup of $2 Tim Hortons coffee. And we are charged as fiduciaries with taking advantage of that volatility on behalf of those who have entrusted us with their capital. So if you know the value of a business and it falls suddenly in price, then we have the ability to take advantage of that volatility. And that's why we don't look at volatility as risk, but as opportunity. Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. This is this is why we've worked so well with Edgepoint. There's a lot of similarity, Ty. You don't get the opportunity to see uh, my cartwheels when we start seeing the markets fall because there's a, it's, it's, everything's on sale. This is the only time, the markets are the only time where people don't want to buy anything when it's on sale. Everywhere else, shopping malls, grocery stores, they'll go and They'll do the Boxing Day shopping, but when it's Boxing Day shopping in the markets, they're not they're not going there. They're actually running the other way, which is a very interesting psychological issue. We talked to Rob, you and I talk about this, and and there is going to be more issues about this volatility, concerns about retirement. Uh, we've we've had a lot of uh, discussion off air. We've had a lot of discussion with clients about the markets and how the investment approach should be happening today because it's a different landscape than it was 12 months ago, heck, even six months ago. And so we wanted to talk to one of our partners, one of the mm -hmm. members on, in our portfolio that we work closely with, Ty Busada, portfolio manager and founding partner at Edgepoint Investment Group. Ty, you know, when you look at what's happening today with everything from geopolitical to inflation to rising interest rates, everything, how should an investor approach the markets today versus the last time you were on when we were looking at the markets? What's the difference today versus any time in the past that we've chatted? 
Yeah, I think there's going to be uh, some consistency uh, with what we've previously said. Let me walk you through a couple of things that I think the investors should keep in mind when they're, when they're approaching invest, investing. First of all, I think it's very important for investors to invest with an investment approach that they can understand. Um, and, and why does that matter? Because it's not always going to be smooth, as you've pointed out. And what ends up happening is, is when there's a drawdown in the market, um, it can be very uncomfortable uh, if you don't understand the investment approach that the managers that you've hired are using to manage your money. So at Edgepoint, we tend to use more of a, a common sense investment approach that's not that common in the market. We, we think about trying to be business people that buy businesses. So we approach it, uh, we, we approach it with the idea that we'd like to see revenue growth and we'd like to see some barriers to entry in the business that are going to protect their margins. Uh, for example, and we want to see a good management team with a good management succession. And by the way, we want all of those great things, but we don't want to pay for it. Uh, so it's very bottom-up, fundamental in nature, and we take a long-term view, meaning we usually look out five years. And what we're trying to do is, is identify businesses that can grow and where you're not being asked to pay for that growth. So that's how we do things. That might make sense to some people, but for others it doesn't. But I think to answer your question, the most important point is, is whatever you're invested in, you should be comfortable with. Because when the markets drop, you're going to have to gut check yourself and say, do I understand how my money's being invested? And if you do, it's a lot easier to stay invested. In a lot of instances, add because you understand that a market drop has historically, uh, over the long term, represented good opportunities for you to invest. I think the second part of the answer about how investors should be approaching investing in today's markets has to do with the idea that investors should always invest with a well-calibrated sense of future regret. And what does that mean? It means, let me give you a few examples of what future regret could mean. Well, first of all, assuming that the past will be like the future has never uh, really proven to be a good assumption over the long term, but it's something that investors regularly want to do. They get caught up in, in the latest fad uh, of the last couple of years, and because it's been working, they want to stick with that, and they assume that what's worked in the past is going to continue to work in the future. I liken that thinking to walking up to a roulette table and putting a good chunk of your investment savings on one number at a roulette table. Uh, you probably wouldn't do that. Uh, but when it comes to investing and you think about the future, the future probably has 500 different outcomes. And if you're just investing in your future, like the future is going to be what we've just seen in the past, then it's like you're just investing a good portion of your savings on one simple outcome. So what you have to do is, is be invested in a portfolio that is very diversified by business idea in order to avoid the future regret of assuming that the future is going to be like the past. I could walk through a bunch of examples later, if you'd like, probably 50 years worth of examples in two, year, in, in two minutes, I should say, of people constantly making the mistake over the last five decades of assuming that the future is going to be like the past and how it's never worked out. 
I think another thing that investors should uh, always remember when it comes to having a well-calibrated sense of future regret is that you should never forget in the good times that there's a cost of admission to building wealth. And that cost of admission goes back to the conversation that we were just having about volatility and the idea that there is going to be volatility in the market and you have to approach volatility with the idea that volatility is the friend of the investor who knows the value of a business and it's the enemy of the investor who doesn't. Most people def define volatility as risk and if you define it that way, like most people, you're likely going to regret it in the future. You have to look at volatility as opportunity and you have to be invested with managers that you understand the investment approach of and where you know they're taking advantage of that volatility on your behalf to build your wealth over the long term. So future regret number two is forgetting in good times that there's a cost of admission to building wealth and that at some point in the future there's going to be a drawdown in the market and that's just the cost of admission to compounding wealth over the long term. Yeah. Sh shall we get an example from Ty? We've got we've got about a couple minutes left. That's what I was yeah hoping for. Is there is there a can you talk about some advantages right now that you're seeing and your team seeing in the market for for a theme or a sector in the market that you're taking advantage of right now? Yeah, I think it's thanks, Rob, for that question. I think it's very important to highlight that what we try and do is diversify the portfolio as much as possible by business ideas. So if you look at our global portfolio, for example, we'll have 35 ideas in it. And what we try to do is diversify away from obvious correlations and non-obvious correlations in it. And again, it comes back to the future probably having 500 different possibilities and we don't know which path the future is going to take. So what we're trying to do is we go out and try and buy 35 businesses where we think we're buying future growth for free, but we want to have them diversified. So what's an obvious correlation? Let's say you had 50% of the portfolio invested in uh, software companies and it's supposed to be a globally diversified portfolio. Anybody could look at that and say, oh geez, that's not diversified. There's an obvious correlation here where they're making you know, a big bet on software companies. And then there's the non-obvious correlations. So for example, what we have to do is we have to ask ourselves, you know, if we owned a hundred percent of these businesses, all 35 of them, and we and and we approached looking at these businesses from a real world risk perspective, which we always do, what are the types of questions that we would ask ourselves? And one would be, for example, well, what happens if the price of oil were to shoot to $200 a barrel? What does that mean for these 35 businesses? Some of them that we own are going to do very well in that environment. Others are going to do poorly. Others won't be impacted at all. But we have to understand what those non-obvious correlations are. And what we try to do is, is diversify as much as possible so that you're not making uh, an unintended investment in, in, uh, in a non-obvious correlation. Another example, for example, would be what happens if the rate of inflation suddenly drops? So everyone's really worried about inflation. We talked about it earlier. Uh, what happens if you know, inflation rates drop from the high single digit back down to the low single digit? What businesses inside our portfolios would do well? Which ones would do poorly? And you have to make sure that under these real world possibilities that you're well diversified. Being this well diversified has helped us over the last 14 years. And it's something that we're constantly focused on. So that's, I love when he speaks to us because what Ty, what, when you tell us your, your view of things 
um, the what if scenarios. So let's take that from an investment level, number one. Number two, we take that from a diversification perspective, the what if. And that also delivers the kind of performance that, that you've been delivering for the years that you've been doing this. I think that's been fantastic. So I want to, first of all, thank you for joining us on the show today. It's been really nice to have you on here. Faisal and Rob, it's always a pleasure. Thank you very much for the invitation. The what if scenario, Rob, is something that even people who are transitioning to retirement should think beyond just their portfolio. What if interest rates go up? What if inflation is too high? How do you protect your, your savings? What if you want to travel around the world? What if, what if, what if, what if, what if, what if a healthcare issue comes up? How do you bulletproof your retirement? That's going to be the question that people are looking for. And we're going to discuss our solution to that problem at our upcoming seminar. Yep. So many things to think about. You need a plan. So join us Tuesday, March 29th, 7 p.m. This will be live online. Go to morethanmoneyradio.com to register. On behalf of Rob Gary, myself, we will thank you for joining us on More Than Money on 770 CHQR. We'll chat with you next week. David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy in Calgary. The views of David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodgundy is a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc., a subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada. David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy in Calgary. The views of David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodgundy is a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc., a subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada.